Thanks for joining us for Open Bible Online today. Open Bible Baptist Church has been in South Jersey for over 60 years. We love this community and we want to be a help to you. In order to help us help you in the best way possible, would you do us a favor? Please fill out the digital connection card posted in this link. Here you could post prayer requests and also ask any questions you may have about Open Bible. If you'd like to give today, you could give online in less than two minutes. Visit openbiblenj.org for more information. Thanks again for joining us today. Now enjoy the service. This week, as Brother Rich mentioned, started the Olympics. And I'm not going to ask how many of you are watching that because for some reason that's a really controversial topic this year that I don't want to get into. But it had me thinking about sports. And I think most of you know that I am a big hockey fan. I love hockey. Uh, in fact, I have loved hockey before I even knew what hockey was, uh, and that, that's true. Uh, my parents have a picture of me before I was one year old sitting in the top of the championship trophy for the minor league hockey teams, the Calder Cup, and no, we're not showing that up on the screen today, so don't ask. But out of 22-ish years of being a fan of hockey, by far the most, the season that stood out the most in my memory was the 2009 to 2010 season. Um, in case you didn't know already, I am a Flyers fan. Absolutely. Amen. I heard a couple of, there we go. <laughs> That's the only way I can get an amen in a sermon around here, you know. <laughs> but 2009-2010 uh, season, we were in dead last place, which is something us Flyers fans are used to saying around here. And it was around Christmas time, and then as, uh, at that time, a lot of people gave up. It was just no hope, next season we'll do better, trade for some newer people, whatever. But then we started winning a few games, a few more, and it, it got to the point where we could just barely slide in to the playoffs, possibly if we won the last game of the season. And of course, go figure, is against a rivalry team that we almost never won against. And I remember it was April 10th or 11th of that year, it was a Sunday, that this last game was on. And it even went into a, it went overtime and then went to a shootout, and we won. We just barely made it into the playoffs. In fact, I remember very specifically, because it was a Sunday night, it was an, it was an early afternoon game, so we were here in church. In fact, I was sitting right around where Flosstower and the Hendersons are sitting. I was sitting there with my mom, and I remember preacher was preaching that night, and as soon as the service was over, I mean, he had said, A, he didn't even finish men yet. I was figuring out how the score of the game was, right, because I needed to know. And I remember my mom was a little less than thrilled at my spiritual focus that day, but regardless, we won that game, and we moved on into the championship, or into the playoffs. And it, with hockey, you have four rounds of the playoffs. Each one is a best of seven. So you have to win four games four times over to get the Stanley Cup, the, the trophy for the, for the sport. So the first round, we won. It was a little rough, but it was okay. The second round, we play the Boston Bruins. Another rivalry team that we're not good against. And go figure, we are down three games to none. They win the first three. Of a best of seven, remember. So this really ain't good. And then the first game we're down already in the first period. Or in the fourth game we're down in the first period. I remember being in my parents' basement. I was watching the game with my dad in front of the TV. We were sitting there. I remember saying, could you just imagine if we won this game and then won the whole series? And we kind of looked at each other like, yeah, right, like that's going to happen. Right? Well, guess what happened? We scored. And then we scored again. And then we scored again. 
And we won that game in overtime, five to four. And then we won on, we won the next game, and the next game, and, the next, and we won that series in game seven. That year, we moved all the way to the Stanley Cup. And that series, was, that, that whole year was just an incredible story of how they never gave up. There were so many times that they could have just thrown in the towel and said, it's hopeless. <laughs> I mean, down three games to none, that had only a sports team, not just hockey, but a sports team had come back from a three games to none deficit to win a best of seven only, I think, maybe a half a dozen times in recorded history. So this was a big deal. It was incredible. For those of you who don't like hockey, maybe you've heard the story of Florence Chadwick. She was a long-distance swimmer uh, who quit before she reached the shore. This was back in the 1900s. She was trying to get from Catalina Island all the way across to California. That's a distance of 26 miles. So those of you who think you're awesome for being able to run a marathon, imagine swimming a marathon, right? This, is, this was incredible. And she was out there swimming that day, and it got foggy, so foggy she couldn't see where she was going. And she kept pushing on, she kept pushing on, but eventually she was just so worried that she wouldn't be able to make it that she called over the boat that had been following her for safety, and she got into the boat. And when she did, she was told that she was only a mile away from the shore. She had swum 96% of the way, 25 miles successfully. But she quit a mile before the shore. Now, I will say to her credit, she went back and she completed the swim later. In fact, she did it two more times in her career. Stories like that are an inspiration, though. Because even if you don't like sports in here, sports are a lot of times like a metaphor for life, aren't they? We, we can all relate to times where we feel like we're the underdog or when we feel like we're caught without a chance of being able to make it out. We're, we, we have no hope left. We might as well just give up. We, there's been too much against us. We can try again next season or next time. It's, it's, it's not worth going on. But if those people had done that, they would have quit too early. I don't remember who taught me this or when I learned it, but something that has changed my life was the understanding that human beings almost always quit just before things are about to change. We almost always quit just before the change comes. And it's always too soon. The situation is just about to turn around. And I'm wondering, maybe, maybe, and I, I don't know, I have not asked anybody here, but I can't help but think that some people in here today are at that point of either feeling like they should quit, maybe they already feel like they have quit. Maybe you think it's just time to quit on my marriage. Maybe it's time to quit on that problem child. Maybe it's time to quit on my schooling. Maybe it's time to quit on my job. Maybe it's time to quit on my church. Maybe it's time to quit on God. Can I tell you, we quit just before something is going to change. And that mindset changed me because then I was able to take that feeling of almost depression of I need to quit and I was able to move it into a feeling of I need to keep going because something is about to change. So when you take that mindset from focusing on the problem of it's just time to quit, nothing's going to change, and instead fix it on the future hope that something is about to change, maybe just a day away, maybe just a few days away, 
your outlook changes. And when your outlook changes, your situation starts to change. And that is what I want to get across to you today here, is the hope that if you just keep going, something is about to change. I don't say that just to be a feel-good message. Now, I think by the end of today, Lord willing, if this has accomplished its purpose, you will feel encouraged. But I don't say this just to give you a feel-good message. I say this because I want to share with you the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, not just to save us from hell, but then to get us through every single day of our lives, and not just to not just to live, but to thrive, to thrive and to succeed. That hope, if I can share that with you, you will see that it is always too soon to quit. I have just one point today. Just one, and I'm sharing it right here at the start. I know that breaks every sermon rule ever. Yes, I took classes on that in college, so if my professors ever watch this, I apologize. But one point... I'm giving it to you here right now. You cannot quit until God finishes your story. You cannot quit until God finishes your story. That's it. That is the point, and you're going to hear me repeat it a lot. Because I want it drilled into your mind that you cannot quit until God finishes your story. I want you thinking on Monday when work is just absolutely the worst. And I am not there to tell you. I want you telling yourself, I cannot quit until God finishes my story. On Tuesday, when you get that report back from the doctor and it is not good, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's COVID, maybe it's a disease you already had and it wasn't progressing well, it's actually getting worse. And I'm not there to tell you. I want you to tell yourself, I cannot quit until God finishes my story. When Wednesday comes and you're just tired of the week and you're tired of the kids and you're struggling with your spouse and I am not there to tell you, I want you to tell yourself, I cannot quit until God finishes my story. When Thursday comes and that depression hits that nobody else knows about and I'm not there, I want you to tell yourself, I cannot quit until God finishes my story. When September comes and you're failing that class you've been trying so hard to pass, I want you to tell yourself, I cannot quit until God finishes my story. In fact, say that with me right now. I cannot quit until God finishes my story. One more time. I cannot quit until God finishes my story. Over the course of about a year now, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah and most of the times that I've been up here preaching. And I'm not going to lie to you guys. I know I'm a preacher. I know I went to college for pastoral ministry, and I tell you guys all the time, the Bible's applicable, right? Every, every portion of Scripture we can get something from. But I can't believe how much has been in Nehemiah for us to get. Like, I went into this, I think, well, we talked about a few weeks ago. We kind of go into Nehemiah with the idea that it's either justification for our building project or it's a handbook on leadership. And we learned that it's neither of those in the last sermon that we we covered in this, but I kind of went in with that idea of it's just a handbook on leadership. And we've come out with so much. It's this book of how to live a a black and white gospel out in a gray world. It's amazing how much it applies to the 21st century. And today, we're covering Nehemiah beyond the wall. If you want to turn to the last chapter in Nehemiah, that's chapter 13. We're rounding out the series here today. And some of you are internally saying amen that you won't have to hear any Nehemiah sermons for a while. You know, I'm, 
I'm just going to laugh so hard if we get a visiting preacher in here for pulpit supply and they say, turn to Nehemiah, okay? <laughs> that, I promise I won't pay them to do that, but I'm just going to laugh if that happens. Nehemiah chapter 13. Um, we're going to work our way through this chapter, and I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, this chapter is uncomfortable. Can, can I be honest with that? Like, can I be honest? I know I'm the preacher, but can, can I be honest and say the Bible makes me uncomfortable sometimes? And, and, and this might be a little bold to say, but if, if the Bible doesn't make you uncomfortable sometimes, you're probably not reading it right. Because the Bible wasn't made to agree with us. It was made to challenge us. It was made to make us better. And something doesn't make you better if it just makes you feel good all the time. It has to challenge you. It has to get up in your crawl a little bit and make you uncomfortable. And this chapter makes me uncomfortable because I was raised, probably unintentionally, but I was raised with the idea that the Bible is kind of a moral guidebook, right? We go to this and it's just, you guys ever hear the, what's it called, acrostic, B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth? It's kind of that thing where it's, it's this, I, I go to it and I get told how to live. But that's not what it is. And, and in fact, if, if you want to, keep your finger here in Nehemiah, but just turn to the very first page of, of Scripture, not the introductory notes, but the, the first page of Genesis, and, and you'll see the very first three words of our Scripture say, in the beginning. What kind of books begin that way? Stories. Narratives. The Bible is more than just a bunch of do's and don'ts. And just because there's a character in Scripture that does something does not mean we are supposed to follow that. I know this is a little uncomfortable and it might be weird thinking about it at first, but follow me here. Sometimes we get this idea of, oh, this is in the Bible. So-and-so did this here, therefore I should do this. And we forget David was a character in the Bible who committed adultery and murdered someone. But, but oh, he faced his giants, so let's be like David. Parents especially will understand this. If you don't have a kid, try to pretend like you do here for a minute. Is there anyone you know that you would be comfortable telling your child, whatever that person does at all times, feel free to copy them? Would you ever feel comfortable with that? No, why? Because people make mistakes. We're human. You know, you might say, there's a good role model for you, but there's no one you would say, whatever they do at all times, copy them. The people in the Bible were human too. They weren't super saints. They were humans. And they made mistakes. And as uncomfortable as this is, we're not always told God's opinion of what people did. Sometimes we think, oh, if it's in the Bible, it must mean it was good. But unless you're reading in First, first and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, where you get the and this, this was a good king, or this person did evil like all of his fathers before. Unless you're in those books, there's not much of God saying this person did right, this person did wrong. It's here's what this person did, now we have to figure out based on what we know about God. And I'm telling you that because this chapter of Nehemiah is not a good one. In fact, keep a mental tally, if you would, of the things that go right for Nehemiah and the things that go wrong for Nehemiah. And I think you're going to be surprised. In fact, I can almost guarantee that nobody in here has ever heard a sermon on this chapter. 
And you're going to find out why here as we get going. So let's get started. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people. Therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them, that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. If you ever watched a modern-day TV show, you know that a lot of times they have a previously on section at the start of the show where they say previously on whatever show it is, and then they give you about one minute of highlights from the previous episodes. So here's your previously on for Nehemiah. Around 2,000 years before Jesus, God decided that he wanted to get his message across to humanity through a specific tribe of people. This was after the time of Noah. This was after the flood. People had repopulated the earth, and God chose a man named Abram, or we call him Abraham. And he used him to get the message across to the entire world. About a thousand years later, his descendants, now a nation of Israel, decided they wanted a king. God gave them Saul, then David, then Solomon, then the kingdom split. We had the northern kingdom was ten tribes. It kept the name Israel. The southern kingdom took the name Judah because one of the two tribes that it had was Judah. It was the bigger of the two. So we had Israel, we had Judah. Israel went into captivity in 722 B.C. by the Assyrian Empire, never to come back. Southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity under Babylon. That's Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, all those stories you know, around 586 years before Jesus. And then Babylon fell to Persia. Under Persia, Cyrus the Great, after about 70 years of captivity of the Jews, said they can go home. Okay? So that's where we are now. And, the, and they go back in three groups. One was under Zerubbabel, one under Ezra, and one under Nehemiah. Now, I know we haven't talked much about Zerubbabel in this series. Um, and that's because he's a minor character uh, in, in the book. But Zerubbabel was a descendant of the kings of Judah. So he came from the line of David. And people probably would have thought he would have been the Messiah because he was from the line of David. Remember we talked a couple months ago about how every time there was an anointed one in Scripture, that was a Messiah. Not the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. But Messiah just means anointed one. So it was their idea that this person could be the one to lead us. This one could be the one to restore God's kingdom. This one could be the one to make everything work. Well, that would have been Zerubbabel. They would have thought this is the guy who's going to bring back Eden, if you will. That didn't happen. But he and Ezra worked together to rebuild the people religiously. They rebuilt the temple. It was kind of so-so. Nehemiah comes in, and he rebuilt the political structure. He rebuilt the walls. And he had opposition, right, from three enemies in particular, and that was Sambalat, Gershom, and Tobiah. But he still got the job done. He built the walls. And in fact, in chapters 9 through 12, if you were to read those, revival broke out. He and Ezra and, and Zerubbabel led the people in revival. They put away all of the sins that they had, and, and they got right with God, and it was incredible. And it, I kind of wish the book ended on chapter 12. Because <laughs> if it did, I could tell you guys, this guy did it. Like, Nehemiah, he's incredible. He rebuilt the city. Revival broke out among the people. But that's not how the story ends. Everything Nehemiah had worked toward was already falling apart. The people had just heard the law, and they're already disobeying it. Now, when you hear law in the Old Testament, that's the word Torah, and we say Torah. It's the first five books of the Old Testament. 
I draw your attention to that because I want to make a point that law in the Old Testament isn't just a bunch of do's and don'ts. When we hear law today, we think of like police officer enforcing the law, right? Or maybe a judge ruling on a law. That was only a small portion of what that meant. The law, the Torah, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And yes, you have a lot of do's and don'ts in Leviticus and Deuteronomy especially, but Genesis is mostly story. Some of it's poetry. Exodus is mostly instruction. Some of that's poetry and, and narrative too. But just because you see law, don't just think it's do's and don'ts. Think instruction. Think, think this is God sharing his wisdom, not, not of live this way or else, but live this way because it's the best way to live. You guys follow that a little bit? That's the idea of Torah. So that's the idea of law when you read that. So they've been reading this, and they see that they're not supposed to have married Moab and women from Moab and Ammon. Now, I want to encourage you, don't read your 21st century mindset back into this passage. Because if you do, you're going to walk away thinking that Nehemiah is the biggest racist of history. And I don't think he was. Because there's a lot of talk about racial tension, a lot about purity of the ethnic line of Israel, keeping Israel apart from the nations. But was that because God hated everyone who wasn't Jewish? No. John 3.16 says God loves the whole world so much that he sent his only son to die for it. That was true in the Old Testament as much as it is in the New. See, where I think we run into so much trouble is when we teach, or when we think of the Old Testament Israel as being the same as the New Testament church. Think about that for a second. We live in post-New Testament times. We have both halves of our Bible. We know the story. They didn't. And sometimes we have to remember that. We have to remember that the Old Testament Israel was not the New Testament church. And you can't run a church the same way you run a nation. And you can't run a nation the same way you run a church. If you try to, it's not going to work. Throughout history, people have tried to. And it doesn't go well. That's when people start getting killed for their religious beliefs, is when a nation thinks it's a church. So we can't treat the nation of Israel like it was the church. You say, why are you, why are you making such a big deal out of that? Because I want you to realize that God worked through a specific tribe of people in the Old Testament, whereas now he works through the church, which can include anyone regardless of nationality, regardless of ethnic background. Because with that, we can then understand what these verses are about. We can understand that they weren't just racial elitism. We can understand that it wasn't just us Jews and, and no one else. It's not that the Jews were the only pure race on the world and no one else could, could come into God's people. The prohibition against marrying Moab, Moabites and Ammonites went all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. When Israel was coming out of Egypt, Moab and Ammon were distant cousins. They were descendants of, um, of Lot uh, and the relationship that came about after he left Sodom. So they were distant cousins of the Israelites. And when Israel left Egypt, Moab and Ammon should have, as family, helped them, given them some food, some shelter, some water, at least let them pass through the land. But instead, they fought them. And so this wasn't a matter of keeping a racially pure line. It was a matter of national security. Because the Moabites and the Ammonites were enemies. Think of it this way. Imagine if there had been some Israelites who had married Ammonites. And then the Ammonites came to attack Israel. Who do those men defend? 
their families or their wives' families? Who do they fight for? Talk about needing marriage counseling after that, right? That, this was God's point, was national security. We need to keep the nation safe, not about a racial issue. But then pay attention to Israel's reaction in verse 3. The Bible says that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitude. Now think with me, think. I know it's almost noon on Sunday, so we're getting hungry, but think. Did God command them to remove the entire mixed multitude, yes or no? Look at the first two verses there. It was against Moab and against Ammon, not against the mixed multitude. They went further than God intended by removing all foreigners from the nation. Good decision or a bad one? I think a lot of preachers would say it's a good one because they were upholding the purity of Israel, but you don't have most preachers up here today. You invited me, so you get my opinion on this. And, and I realize people will disagree, so I will tell you that up front. I don't think this was a good decision. And the Bible doesn't tell us one way or the other. We're kind of forced to think about it. We're kind of forced to wrestle it out. But here's why I don't think it was a good decision. A couple reasons. One, the prohibition was against Moab and Ammon because of what they did. It wasn't against all foreigners. And sometimes we think, oh, it was just about the Jews and no one could come into their nation. And then we forget about Rahab. We forget about Ruth. We forget about the mixed multitude that came out of Egypt with them when they were enslaved. And as we continue reading the chapter, I think we'll see that Nehemiah keeps overstepping his boundaries of what God gave him authority to do. So let's keep reading. Verse 4. Before this, Eliashib the priest, get that, Eliashib is the priest, having oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied unto Tobiah. Yes, the same Tobiah from chapter 4 where they were trying to stop the wall from being built. So this is happening all around the same time of what Nehemiah just wrote. Eliashib the priest, one of the spiritual leaders of the community, goes and invites not just anyone, but Tobiah himself to stay in the temple. Way back in chapter 4, Nehemiah refused to stay in the temple for safety because he knew it was the priest's place to go in the temple, not his. And Nehemiah was a Jew. Now this guy's an Ammonite. Don't lose the irony here. The Jews were told, get rid of the Moabites and the Ammonite. Well, they were told, don't marry the Moabites and the Ammonites. And they get rid of all the foreigners. Now they let one foreigner in, and he's an Ammonite. <laughs> so the one person who really wasn't supposed to be there is in the temple. And the next verse describes how Eliashib, the priest, the spiritual leader of the community, went out of his way to make this guy comfortable. Do you get how bad of a situation this is for Nehemiah? Tobiah never should have been there in the first place. Foreigners weren't allowed in the temple. So... <laughs> Nehemiah then in verse 6, I love, I love this response. But in all this time was not I at Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year of our Xerxes king of Babylon came I unto the king, and after certain days I obtained leave of the king. <laughs> Isn't that just so true to life? I wasn't there when it happened. <laughs> this wasn't on me. <laughs> I think it's kind of hilarious how his personality shines through in the verse there a little bit. Verses 7 to 13 then cover his removing of Tobiah, and how he reinstitutes all of the reforms that he had been trying to for the previous years. Like, think about if you've worked all day at work on this one task, and then you get to the end of the day and you realize you did something wrong at the start, and you got to restart the whole thing. Think about how you feel with that. 
But imagine this was years of work. That's what's going on with him right now. He has to redo all of this. And he prays in verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God, for the offices thereof. This remember me prayer. It's something he prays four times in this chapter alone. Another time earlier in the book. I relate to this prayer. It's kind of, it almost, it, it almost feels like he's given up hope a little bit. Like, God, I've done my best. Remember my good, forget my bad. Like, like there have been times in my life, if I can just be honest with you guys, where I feel like I've messed up one too many times, and I feel like I'm almost bargaining with God of like, remember, do we have to talk about this thing that I just messed up on again? Can we just remember the good that I've done? You know, can, can, don't, don't, don't think about the bad, just think about the good. Can we go back to when, when it felt good between the two of us again? I think that's kind of where Nehemiah is right now. He's discouraged. He's, I think, bordering on depression at this point. The next verses recount his encounter with local merchants who didn't keep his Sabbath rules. You can hear the frustration mounting in his voice in verse 21. He says, I testified against them. I said unto them, why lodge ye here at the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth, they came no more on the Sabbath. Verses 23 to 28 are probably the lowest point of the whole book for Nehemiah. In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod and of Ammon and of Moab. Apparently the people still weren't listening to him. Yeah, they were marrying these foreigners again. Or, or maybe it was a group that he missed the first time he went through. I don't know. But what I do know is he didn't respond well. Read verse 25 with me if you would. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair. I made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. <laughs> of all the times I have heard someone preach on Nehemiah, never once had I heard someone mention this verse. <laughs> That's easy to understand why, right? If you think Nehemiah is a book on leadership, this verse has no point being in the book. This is uncomfortable. And while I would love to skip over it, it happened. So let's address the verse. Nehemiah got so mad at the people that he contended with them, he cursed them, he smote them, and he plucked out the hair of some of them. Now, contended means he quarreled with them. It can even mean he attacked them. So I think of it almost like he, he was so worked up, he just started yelling at them and getting in their face, and then it started getting to the point where he's ready to fight. Should a leader be contentious, though? No, I mean, we're kind of used to it. We're used to bosses and employers who, who yell at us, sometimes, unfortunately, even pastors who get contentious if they don't get their way. Now, thankfully, we did not have that in our pastor, but a lot of churches do, and we're kind of used to these leaders who are like that, but that's not good. Curse doesn't mean he spat out four-letter words at them. It actually means that he mocked or he belittled them. He made fun of them. He called them names. This was like emotional and psychological warfare, trying to break down their spirit of who they were. And that's never okay. No, I, I'm not talking about being sarcastic with friends, cutting up with some friends and having a good time. You, you guys know I'm a sarcastic person. But it's not okay to try to hurt someone like this, no matter what they've done to you. You cannot read this honestly without thinking Nehemiah intended to hurt these people physically and emotionally. The word smote can mean anything from hitting even to killing in the Old Testament. 
So the point is he was not pulling his punches, and literally or figuratively. He meant to hurt these people, and that's not okay. I realize that the context is different, but maybe it would help you if you think of if the governor of New Jersey got so mad at people in New Jersey that he started physically assaulting some of them. He would lose his position, and he'd probably end up in jail pretty fast. And that's exactly what Nehemiah's been doing. Now, I don't want you reading this and thinking Nehemiah is the worst person in history. I really don't think he was. He did a lot of great stuff. I mean, seriously, he rebuilt a city amidst armies of people trying to kill him, and he did it in 52 days. Then he tried to micromanage the people's lives every day, day in and day out. I think this chapter is Nehemiah experiencing burnout. There's only so much a person can handle before they snap. And this is Nehemiah snapping. Talk about being relatable, right? You can feel it in his voice. It sounds like he's carrying the weight of the world with him. Look at verse 28. One of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Get this. One... One of Eliashib, remember the priest, his grandson married Sambalat's daughter. Yes, the same Sambalat from chapter 4. So now you've got the priest being essentially father-in-law to Sambalat. Things couldn't get any worse, right? Tradition tells us they do. Because Nehemiah chases this guy away from him. And tradition tells us his name was Manasseh. Manasseh went crying to his father-in-law, Sanballat. And Sanballat decided to build him his own temple on Mount Gerizim. All right? Fast forward with me about 400 years. John chapter 4. Jesus is walking through Samaria, and he stops by a well. There's a woman there, and they start talking. And when the woman gets uncomfortable that the conversation is getting too personal, she switches topics to religion. Isn't that funny? We'd switch it from religion. She she switches it to religion. And she says, tell me, teacher, should we worship in your mountain, in Mount Zion, Mount Zion, or should we worship in this mountain? And when she points to this mountain, she's pointing to Mount Gerizim and the temple that Sambalat built for Manasseh. That Jewish-Samaritan controversy you hear about so much in the New Testament came from this verse. Now, I will be honest to history. There had already been some feuding around before that. It wasn't exactly where it started it, but this is what jumped that forward, and I cannot help but think that 500 years of hatred, of racial tension, of people dying could have been avoided if Nehemiah would have just treated Manasseh a little bit differently. I don't think it is wrong that Nehemiah addressed the problem. It was a problem. But what was wrong was how he addressed the problem. What if instead of chasing him out, he had tried to correct him lovingly? What if he gave him a chance? What if he talked to him? What if he just asked, did you even know you weren't supposed to do this? I don't know. But I do think it's a solid lesson for us that our actions and our words carry weight far beyond our generation. What you say to your children, what you say to that cashier, what you say to that person on the phone when you're complaining about a wrong Amazon order, that can affect generations down. Words are powerful. 
Someone once said that hurt people hurt people. I know that sounds weird at first, but think about this. Hurt people hurt people. Or I could word it this way. People who are hurting hurt other people. If you guys ever come across a book by that title, Hurt People, Hurt People, pick it up and read it. It will change your life. I don't say this to justify someone hurting you. It's wrong to hurt people. But when you can understand why they acted the way they did, it might prevent you from hurting them back. It might prevent you from increasing the wrong. It might allow you to stop the problem right then and there and reverse the course of their life. Hurt people hurt people. And Nehemiah was hurting in this chapter. The book ends with a few final comments and one more prayer. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers, appointed the wards for the priests and the Levites, everyone in his business, the wood offering at times appointed for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. That's how the book ends. It's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Like, we're seeing all of this awesome stuff through the book. He builds the wall, he gets revival. And essentially, the book ends with Nehemiah saying, God, I did my best. I'm done. He throws in the towel. He tried to make Israel this place worthy of the coming Messiah, but the Messiah didn't come. And after just a few years, the people were making the exact same mistakes that put them in captivity in the first place. But I would argue that Nehemiah's story doesn't end there. Yes, the book ends there, but we have to look beyond the wall. And if we look beyond the wall, we have the benefit of seeing the rest of history, and we can see that it was too soon to give up. The story wasn't finished yet. God was still working. There is a song that says, Arrival is not the end game. The journey is where you are. You never wanted perfect. You just wanted my heart. And the story isn't over if the story isn't good. And failure's never final when the Father's in the room. I love how that's worded. The story isn't over if the story isn't good. And failure's never final when the Father's in the room. What in your life has you thinking your story's over? At whatever age you might be. Is it a health problem? Is it an addiction? A relationship problem, a relationship that went wrong, a relationship that doesn't exist, and you wish it did, a job, not having the job you want, retirement, cancer, COVID, what is it? What have you done or experienced or had happen to you that makes you feel like you should just throw in the towel? Once you start believing that that is what defines you, you've already given up. Once you say, I am a cancer patient, instead of I have cancer, you've basically given up. Once you say, I'm depressive, instead of I have depression, you've given up. Once you say, I'm a schizophrenic, instead of, I struggle with schizophrenia. Once you say, I, I'm just an abuser, instead of, I've hurt some people. Once you, struggle, once you say, I'm broken goods, I'm abused, instead of, I have been abused, 
You've given up. Do you see the difference? There's a difference between saying something has happened to me and saying I am something. Because what you think you are is what you let define you. Now, I am not by any wise saying ignore what has happened. Not in any wise. Those things happen. They are true. They are a part of what made you what you are now, but they are not you. There is a difference between saying I have something or I suffer with something or I deal with something or I I have had something happen to me and saying this is me. You don't ever have to be a health problem. You don't ever have to be abused. You can have times in your life where you have been abused, but that doesn't have to be what defines you. You can have an anger problem, but that doesn't mean you have to be an angry person. Don't let it define you. Don't let it ruin your story like Nehemiah did. You don't ever have to end with, well, I tried. You know why? Because God's already tried for you. In fact, he more than tried. He conquered. He won. He died and he rose again. Defeating death itself. Come on. That's incredible. And if your God can do that, your story doesn't ever have to end with, at least I tried. It can end with, I conquered. I won. I overcame addiction. I had the first successful marriage in my family. I learned from my parents' mistakes. I didn't give in. I made a difference. I impacted my community, my school, my friends, my college, my work, my church, my country, my world. That can be how your story ends. It is possible. And my friends, Nehemiah wasn't actually off nearly as bad as he thought it was. Because if you look beyond the wall, yes, the book ended with a question mark. Yes, it wondered where the Messiah would be. In fact, the Old Testament ends that way. But if you look just 400 years later, the Messiah did come. And he came not to save Israel from its enemies like they thought, but to save all of humanity from itself, from sin. Jesus brings hope, redemption, and closure to the story of Nehemiah. You know why? Get this. It was Ezra's temple with updates from King Herod that Jesus worshipped his father in. It was that temple that he overthrew the money changers' tables in. It was that temple that he went to worship in. It was Nehemiah's gates that were rebuilt that Jesus walked through going into the city. It was Nehemiah's walls outside of which Jesus was crucified for your sins and for mine. It was outside of those walls that he was buried and then that he rose again three days later. Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, their work was not in vain. They didn't see it in their lifetimes. But some generations down the road, God decided to send his son to earth. And when he did, it was on the land that they rebuilt to the temple they had constructed within the walls they had fortified. The story isn't over if the story isn't good. And it's true, Nehemiah's ending isn't the most upbeat passage you will probably read this week. But I would contend that the story of Nehemiah does not end where the book ends. It goes all the way up to the birth, death, life, resurrection of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Jesus himself. Jesus turned a story that ended in apparent failure into one of unspeakable hope and joy and redemption. That is exactly what he wants to do with you. One of my favorite book series as a kid was C.S. Lewis's Narnia. And if you've never read it, I highly recommend you do. No matter what your age is, it's fantastic. The spiritual truth in it and just plain old good writing. With a few exceptions, the seven books of the series follow the four Pevensey children as they have adventures in the land of Narnia. 
a fantasy world overseen by the lion Aslan, which is Lewis's representation of God. The series ends with these words concerning Aslan. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. And for us, this is the end. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. I think that's beautiful. And I think Lewis meant for that not just to be the story of the Pevensey children, but to be the story of our life too, if we know Jesus as Savior. Your story never has to end with a question mark. It doesn't have to end in defeat. It doesn't have to be ruled by stigma or labels or what other people think of you or, get this, even what you think of yourself. It can end in an exclamation point, in victory, in triumph and in power, all because Jesus' death and resurrection more than just saved you from hell. It gives you power every day to live life in his strength, not in yours, in the newness of his life, not in the weight of your past. The book of Nehemiah mirrors our lives in a lot of ways. We have ups and downs. We're never 100% successful. We have stuff happen. We get burnt out and ashamed of what we did, just like Nehemiah. But also like Nehemiah, our stories don't have to end there. They continue to the cross, the empty grave, and well beyond into eternity. My friends, I don't know what might have you wanting to quit today, or or maybe in the future you need this, and you come back and you think of this truth from Nehemiah. But whatever might have you wanting to quit, let me tell you, it's too soon. Don't quit yet. You can't quit until God finishes your story, and your story isn't over until the ending is good. So I have good news for you here today. If you feel like your life story isn't good, that's good, because it means it isn't over yet. If you feel like your life story isn't good, that means it isn't over yet. It's not over until God makes it good. So as we go to prayer, I want to challenge you. Get on your knees before God, whether figuratively or literally. You can come down here to the front of the altar and turn your life story over to God. Put your story in his hands and let him make it good. Let's pray. Father, we have come to the end of a really unique book in the scriptures that you've given to us. And it's a book that has challenged me and I pray has changed the lives of Open Bible. God, I gotta admit, I was confused at first when I read it and I saw the ending of the story. It it saddened me a little bit because I didn't remember that. But I thank you for the truth your Holy Spirit has imparted that Nehemiah's story didn't really end on the last page of the book. It went forward. Even though he didn't see it, even though he couldn't understand it, his story didn't end in failure. And God, I pray for these, my friends, whether they're here for the first time or they've been here for 50 years, may it be that they would be encouraged never to quit. And that whether it be today, tomorrow, sometime in the future they need this, that you would bring back to mind, I cannot quit until God finishes my story. Lord, I commit my story and the story of this church, both individually and corporately, into your hands. It is not in ours. We can't control it. And if we tried to, we'd mess it up, but you have it in your hands. And that's refreshing to know. 
Lord, may we turn over our stories to you today and may you make them good. In your son's name. Thanks again for watching us online today. If you haven't done so already, please fill out a digital connection card so we know how to better serve you this week. For encouragement throughout your week, you can listen to past sermons by searching Open Bible Baptist Church on the Apple Podcast or Google Play Store. If you'd like to give today, you could give online at openbiblenj.org. Thanks again for joining us today. We'll see you on the next broadcast.